Right, Ben, I'm going to do something that I don't usually do. I'm going to um, give you an intro on the podcast. So, are you, are you ready for this? Yeah, I'm all right. I wrote it not, not so long ago, but Ben Michelle, to the Mantelic listeners, is a writer for The Times. He has also written for Esquire, London Evening Standard, Q, BBC and Vice. He's interviewed Pelé, former spies, a Nobel Prize winning scientist, billionaires, some of the biggest sports stars, death row inmates, political dissidents and many more. Ben has also written many in-depth features, including the rise in rape culture on campuses and the boom in the uptake of martial arts. He has also got his bollocks waxed for a magazine feature once. Ben is also a worldwide Twitter funny man. He knows how to write a powerful tweet and he is one man who has played a big part in helping me off the field and has been a massive help to mentality over the years too. How was that? That was really nice. Oh, well, nice. <laughs> yeah, it's a nice, it's a nice, nice way to do it, isn't it? Yeah, it's I, weird, I felt. Did Did that sound like sort of like um, key stage two writing compared to you guys? No, that I mean, I I, I didn't recognise the person you were describing. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's but just got the wrong through you. <laughs> No, right. it, was, it was very touching. I, f- I feel like I've died. Um, yeah. that, uh, <laughs> Come to heaven. <laughs> no, no, that, that people just sort of uh, say nice things about me now. That oh, well, mate, it's, it's, it's a pleasure. It's a pleasure. And of course, we've, we've got another esteemed writer in the house as well, Chris O'Connor. Pleasure to be on, mate. Yeah, no, looking forward to this one. I think it'd be really good. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to it. Me and Chris chatted a little bit before, and Ben, and I know we chatted on the phone the other day, Ben, and... Uh, Looking to have a, a nice um, chilled out chat. One of the, the mentality chilled out chats. Um, we all wanted to get a pint. We all wanted to um, take it easier tonight. I've got a, a turmeric and ginger lemon tea. Chris has got a G&T and, and Ben's got some sort of energy drink, mate. Is that is it an energy drink you've got? On? I think it's a Heineken, is it? Yeah, I mean, in, in a sense, you're, you're right. It is uh, one of those little kind of Coke-sized cans of Heineken. Because um, <laughs> okay. I'm not, I'm, I'm not an animal. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's um, yeah. It's it, it's it's drastic measures. It sounds, mate. Um, but yeah, let's let's have a crack. Let's let's get into it, mate. And uh, obviously, just a bit of background. I, I know Ben from a while ago, from around the start of um, mentality, if you like, I, I threw a thing uh, through a few things at Ben and asked him a few questions and, and sought after his advice um, about the whole thing, setting it up and starting it up and, and, and the best way to go about it. Um, and we just chatted from there and I've, I've um, we've kept in contact since. Um, and I know we've probably spoke about this before, Ben, but could he give a bit of a, an insight, mate, into how you became um, a writer? Yeah, 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 it'd be my pleasure. So, um it's probably be quite boring to a lot of people, but essentially the, I, I finished sixth form and I was like, I'm going to take a gap year. Um, and I, I knew a company in Doncaster for a year, which is, I don't know if I do that again. Like I might sort of go to Goa or Thailand or yeah. anything other than going to, to, to Doncaster every day. Yeah. Um, and within uh, about, a week I was like this is actually sort of quite boring I thought it might be more exciting um, and I just needed something to do because um, I was sat at a desk and it, it wasn't I don't think anyone really sort of wanted me there 
Um, <laughs> and weirdly enough, um, some kids who I'd been in scouts with uh, a few years previously, and, and, and this is you really getting a sense of just how kind of cool uh, <laughs> and, and sort of street level I am. Some kids yeah. who I was in scouts with in Roundhay, um, they'd set up a, I suppose it was kind of like a proto social media kind of um, online magazine type thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it did quite well and they, they just needed sort of like content for it basically and this was would have been 2000 2001 and I was like I'll, 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 I'll write stuff I'll, I'll, I've, I've literally got a computer and a desk and nothing to do so I started doing just anything you know kind of um, writing about films writing about music uh, you know I suppose lifestyle stuff um, and sort of very quickly just for want of not having anything else to do i got quite into it um and then by the time <clears throat> i finished and, and and went to university i, I went to uh, birmingham to do a history degree which again just gives you loads of free time because it's not a lot of <laughs> it's not a lot of work yeah. doing a history degree at birmingham um so i just had a lot of time to kind of spend just again sort of um trying to find people who'd let me write for them and uh, that was everything from local newspapers to music blogs at that time uh, music magazines i was sort of leaning towards you know i was like i want to write about indie music because that's how interesting i, I am and that's what's important in the world um and, and that's kind of, that's kind of what i did um and uh, eventually i was writing for a couple of magazines in london on, on, on a sort of freelance basis and i was, I was traveling down there to, to to work in the office um and i was sort of getting paid to write which at that point in time was a lot easier to do than it is now but equally like it's kind of validation you know mm. someone's giving you money and then they're putting your name in a magazine mm. above a 70 word review of a band <laughs> and but you think that's amazing you're like oh, i cannot believe this yeah um and i was like i, I kind of want to do this for my job like i think this is probably what i want to do and so i, I moved to london i did a uh this was in 2004 and I did a, um, a diploma in magazine journalism. Um, and yeah, just more freelance work. I wrote for Time Out. Um, uh, again, more music magazine stuff. And then in 2005, I applied for a job um, working for the Times magazine, which is the sort of the glossy mag that comes out on a Saturday with, mm-hmm. with the Times. And this was in food stuff, but oddly enough, and I'd never dreamt that I'd want to write about food, but I didn't tell them that. I was like, I, yeah, I love food. Yeah, I'm going <laughs> to. Yeah, I mean, look at me and um i yeah i got the job and and that's kind of that was it i've been there 15 wow. years been there yeah. 15 years yeah. and obviously like the stuff you do evolves and like, the, the challenges that you get kind of um increase but um that's 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 it i wish i could say that there was sort of more helicopters and gunfire and yeah. stuff but there's not <laughs> yeah i'm conscious though that you, you've probably got a good radar of of um where you sit in um, in the, the ability to to tell your own stories compared to what you've um, you've been, I don't know what you've been listening to, what you've been interviewing, what you've been a, um, a part of in the in the sort of career at the times, and, and been able to find out about um, what's what's being a writer to you now. Then, so like what you know, the, and I know you mentioned a little bit when when we were chatting about the mystique of of mm. being a writer. What is it to you now? What like what does it mean to you? I mean, I, I think it, it it means a couple of things because, you know, maybe people listening is thinking, well, like writer, you know, there's, 
so many different types and you'll know this chris as well you know you can you know even within journalism or even on the newspaper you know there's people who are reporters whose job is to go and find stories and they don't necessarily have to be able to string a sentence together i mean it helps but if the people who've got a absolute news hound instinct and can get people talking and so then there are people who can write really beautifully well but who you know i've got absolutely zero instinct at all um I, i'd probably put myself <laughs> somewhere between the two <laughs> um i i guess <clears throat> my job is 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 getting people to talk um in depth about stuff you know whether that's a sports person or whether that's um you know somebody who is not necessarily famous but has got a story to tell um and i suppose in a way it's sort of fetching and carrying you're the intermediary between you know a wider story whether that's you know we can get into it in a bit but you know people who you know someone who was in the black panthers in the 1960s and then ended up spending 40 plus years on death row for something they didn't do and they thought like you have to speak to him (laughs) and then convey all of that you know to a readership um who don't necessarily spend a lot of time thinking about you know wrongfully incarcerated black panthers and get them to kind of finish the feature and get, get, get them to read to the end and I, I think that's kind of how i've come to conceptualize myself somebody who's kind of just in sort of in between the story and the readers and just sort of doing their best to kind of get them to get their heads around it and get them to i suppose just get to the end of get to the end of it to read to the end because i start so many things that i, ne- I never end up finish reading i never finish reading and which is my fault to, to a large degree but maybe because of that i'm like i just you know i really just want to make sure that if anyone starts this that they at least kind of get to the end so they can leave rude comments about, about me in the comments at the end you know I I, I I i don't necessarily see my job as some bringing people to tears you know or breaking people's hearts with mm. you know with, uh, with, with 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 my prose i've probably chris has probably got loads of questions here and um I'll, I'll i'll give you a chance to jump in chris but so do, you, do you feel like you have to be quite adaptive then so like you know i, I briefly mentioned in the intro and, and you know you, you said a little bit there yourself like does it take a bit of nerve to to be able to put yourself in these situations and and, and what what's the self-talk going into like an extreme version of, of it yeah i mean so it, it's absolutely nerve-wracking like it never gets like before I do an interview with somebody, whether it's you know uh, going to Paris Fashion Week to interview Pharrell Williams about his new puffer jacket, right? That like I would be stressed because yeah. you're getting on a train, you know, people are paying money, like, and it's kind of like, what if it just goes really badly wrong? You know, like what if it's a complete disaster? Yeah. Or if you're having to kind of you know uh, approach someone who's you know, younger brother was murdered in, uh, you know, some gang-related incident, and you want to ask them, you know, how they felt, you know, what what their views are on how, you know, drill music has sort of contributed to, you know, like a wave of, of, of violence, you know, across London or whatever. That is obviously nerve-wracking as well, mm. because you you're dealing with people's feelings and emotions, and you're you're kind of asking people in that situation to be really vulnerable. So. Mm you can't really win <laughs> like no. you know it, it, it's kind of um yeah it, it, i think if you lose if you sort of lose the nerves then something's going a bit wrong but it's not a kind of um it's not a laugh 
like like it's it's nice having done it all and, and and learning about subjects and learning about people and you know kind of really kind of blitzing on stuff that at the start of the day you didn't even know you'd have to be thinking about like i love that that's great yeah and i love handing it in and love you know people saying this is fine um but all the other stuff i, I, I you know it's not something that you do for fun really because maybe if i was a bit better at it i, I would but um no, you 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 kind of having to deal with a lot of people's feelings. Yeah, yeah, you are sort of the, the middleman for a, for a lot of stuff there, and yeah, what 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 what's like been one of the most just going off the back of that? What's been one of the most sort of like intense here, which where you, where you found it? I know you mentioned a couple there, but what's sort of been like one of the the, the hardest to to navigate? So, so there's been there's. Probably about 10 years ago, I had to do a story about some of Britain's best surgeons. And one of these surgeons did a, 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 a team of surgeons really did a sort of full facial reconstruction on a young Iraqi boy um, who had been caught up in, in, an, in an airstrike. His, his village was bombed. Um, and he lost his entire family, barring his dad. Um, and without putting sort of too fine a point on it, he's, he, he lost his face. You know, it was. It, absolutely awful and very kindly and 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 and, and you know very generously did this team of british surgeons that did everything they can essentially to to kind of piece him back together and they did an incredible job um but i had to interview the surgeon and i had to the difficult asking asking someone to relive you know so that people can understand why he's here and, and why we're talking and and what he's been through you know, asking those questions and sort of going there and he was there to talk about it, you know, so I didn't kind of feel like I was kind of doing something uh, horribly intrusive, but it's just hard to look at someone, you know, who's got one glass eye who, um, you know, kind of bears the physical scars of this thing and just kind of getting them to sort of take you there because you have to explain why you're here. And I found that really hard because there was a, a point when, you know, a sort of a tear kind of went down his face and you kind of like well I, this is if i was in, in normal circumstances i would just stop right here because this this lad's upset and then you have to kind of remind yourself and i guess this is something that you like learn quite quickly is that these aren't normal circumstances and they're not normal conversations you know and and, and they're kind of um everything that a normal human being would do you wouldn't really do in an interview because it's not just a chat and and kind of that moment where I, I sort of knew that by continuing to ask him about it would be sort of painful but you kind of still have to kind of ask because that's he, he kind of wants to um that was really hard because um I'm not that sort of person I don't want to hold people's feet to the fire mm. but also you have to kind of create that sort of space with people are kind of wanting, you know, AS was able to share that kind of stuff. And in the end it was, it was, it was fine. And it was, you know, it was powerful, but just on a human level, you're sort of thinking like, I was pretty sure I was doing like wanting to do album reviews of, you know, the strokes about two years ago, like how, how have I sort of ended up here? And, and then another really difficult one that just from memory, um, <clears throat> some, uh, some American parents lost their child to, um, uh, a, a brain tumor like a very sort of long long standing one and but they they created a, a computer game like an interactive sort of virtual game about his life and his world and you go into it and it's snippets of this boy's 
laughing and snippets of their conversations that they recorded and stuff. And it's it's about his his journey and his battle with cancer. And it's absolutely beautiful, incredible. And I just couldn't, I couldn't even do it. I, I, at this point, I had a, a young son, and I was just like, "This is just too much. I can't play this game." I was in bits. I was in absolute floods of tears. Yeah. Um, and then you have to have this kind of you then you have to talk you know interview these parents who are kind of obviously really upset about it and again it's one of these things where like I never actually got out of bed or and thought I'd love to write about bereaved parents and um, you know uh, Iraqi kids who have suffered horrific trauma but um, yeah they you sort of end up having to do that but like you say you also end up having to get your balls waxed and stuff so <laughs> it sort of swings around about swings swings and roundabouts yeah yeah so what, what what's the what's the process then I know there's um, you know those, those sort of intense emotionally intense um, harrowing harrowing sort of pieces What what's the process then we, obviously you'd, you'd have to record it someone else transcribe it for you and then you've got to sit down and sort of put yourself back in that place again well, when you're writing it well so, so, so specifically for those kind of difficult ones or yeah. just, just in general yeah I mean I think once it's sort of done once you've done the interview then you sort of switch into a kind of as quite a technical headspace I suppose because mm. you know as much as we talk about you know I talk about the mystique of writing particularly when you're kind of dealing with what's basically like a lot of information and whether it's you know difficult sad dramatic information or you know fun happy information about other you know stuff about bodybuilding or whatever or martial arts or um you kind of then just have to sort of start to kind of think well all right well what's the most interesting stuff how do i explain this how do i tee it all up and you know you're not kind of there looking out the window sort of sucking on a biro looking sort of clever you're just sort of sifting through yeah. pages and pages thinking oh, well, kind of, is, is that is that relevant is that interesting was that and um you, you it, it it's kind of like sort of building in something from ikea more than shakespeare do you know what i mean it's just mm-hmm. kind of thinking can i use this what's that for i'm not quite sure i'll put that to one side uh and if you're very very lucky at some point you'll it'll kind of open up before you you'll kind of think ah, well, I, I think i can see how this all fits together but it's definitely not <clears throat> It's definitely not a case of you know writing from the heart because um, that's not really what what the job is. Um, it, it is just arranging information in a way that makes sense to most people. So is that is that what it, what opens up in front of you that you can sometimes see the the journey of of how it goes through the, the piece? I think just seeing how it ends. You know, like I think and maybe you know listeners will, will be able to relate. But I think if you're doing any sort of standalone project and you start. And to begin with, you're just like, how am I, how is this even meant to happen? How am I meant to do this? Like, you know, there's so many different possible ways of put, putting this together or doing this, you know, whether it's a presentation, or whether it's something you actually have to make or whatever. And what I generally find is that the first 20% of it takes about 50% of the time. And then the second 80% of it takes is 50% of the time. Once you kind of sort of start to eliminate all the different kind of side roads you could go down and you sort of think, okay, I'm, I'm starting to kind of see how this might end and where the, you know, different bits of information go. Then you do have that kind of slight feeling of like, okay, I, I can probably do this. Yeah. You know, I, I can probably, I can kind of see how this, how, how this might end, which, 
you know, every time, like, you know, even this morning I was doing something, I was like, you just get to a point where it's like, oh, it's downhill now. It's downhill. I, I, I can, you know, if, if some terrorists come in here and say, finish this piece, or I'm going to blow up your house, I'd be like, just give me 10 minutes. And yeah. then can you please leave? Like, cause I, yeah. I, I know what I'm doing. Um, but it takes a long time to get to that point because yeah. you just think infinite possibilities. How do I write this? How do I present this? Yeah. Chris, I, I, I feel like we need to bring you in here, mate. Is there any, anything that you want to go off right now? Yeah, it's weird. It's one of those, um, usually I like, I like to research the guests a little bit and, and quite often when we get someone on, it's, it's they have um, one story or one thing that's going to be the focus of the, uh, of the chat. But um, I guess with the nature of your job is to constantly go from interesting story to interesting story. So when I was reading up on you, um, there are loads of them. I was like, oh, that sounds really funny. Like there's the anecdote about Pele or uh, this story sounds great. And um, it's tough. Like, I mean, Stevie kind of touched on some of the most memorable ones. So I was wondering, is there a piece you've done which you're you're most proud of? Either, I don't know whether it just like if you were going to put one up on your uh, on your page, like, what would it be? The, the piece that you think, yeah, this this is the closest I've got to like excellence in journalism. Oh, that's really hard because like. It's, it's not the ones that you necessarily expect because as as you say like I, th- I think what we probably need to be absolutely clear on right now is that I am personally like not mega interesting <laughs> like I don't think I'd be doing the job that I do if I was um, particularly complex you know like um, I'm, I'm really fortunate in the sense that I get to meet and speak to so many different people and experience um, you know, the views of, you know, uh, I can't really begin to put it into words, but, you know, you go, for, in a week, you might speak to a Nobel Prize winner and then like some Russian tech billionaire and then a football player and then, you know, just some some psychiatrist, you know, someone who's kind of just no, really knows about stuff and you get to kind of, you know, sort of, sort of vibe off those conversations a bit. In terms of the things that I've really kind of been proud of, do, like, do you, do you know the actor Henry Cavill? He plays like he was yeah. Superman. Well, I, I, and yeah, yeah. he's been in, I think he's The Witcher. I, I do not care about this guy like one bit. Like I've not watched any of his films or anything. But I sort of, uh, maybe two years ago, I got sent to kind of interview him. And it's like, I don't particularly enjoy interviewing actors, to be, to be totally honest. Uh, but it's part of the job. And I was like, okay, well, what's this going to be like? And um, it was just brilliant because he, for whatever reason, we had this conversation where he was just really, really honest about the fact that he just loved being an actor and that he just thought it was class and he loved being Superman and it's brilliant and he gets to get kind of a play with like weapons and he gets to kind of like do all this stuff. I was like, you're actually saying all this stuff that like actors never like, yeah. never say. They were denied. It sounds like something out of extras. And he was really sweet and really sincere and really genuine and I came away and, and I wrote it up and I felt really kind of like that was, I've sort of done justice to this guy who, you know, in a lot of ways is not, there's not a massive amount to say. And yet I kind of felt quite pleased that the result was something that was, I don't know, refreshing. Um, and it's an odd one to pick thinking about Henry Cavill and yet, it was this interview that I, I kind of, um, when, I, when I wrote it up, I was like, oh, this is really interesting. <laughs> this is really good. Um, which is not something I often think 
Um, so that's maybe a slightly odd example. And in terms of other ones, I mean, I don't know, like uh, sometimes it's just the ones where you're speaking to multiple people and you're talking about big ideas and you're having to kind of get your head around stuff that's happening in society. So, I mean, you know, the one that Stevie, where, 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 where um, we spoke for just about young men, uh, mental health and stuff like that. And obviously that is, it's a big, 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 big subject now, but I think back, back then, you know, four or five years ago, it wasn't getting a mass amount of press and you, you, you do something that I suppose it kind of, like, you know, it resonates with people because of the feedback that you get, you know, equally, um, you know, Stevie mentioned it earlier on, but I did a, a, a really big piece on, um, you know, sort of sex, sex abuse, uh, campus rape culture at British universities, just, you know, the, I suppose, the, 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 the problem that is the, the I suppose, atmosphere of sexism, um, that kind of seems to be um, prevalent and on the rise in, in, in higher education. And again, you know, this is stuff that I did not, as a kid, be like, wouldn't it be great to just write about sex abuse on university campuses? That, that was what I want to do. It's like, it never occurred to me. And yet you kind of get into these, um, you speak to these people and you start having conversations and you start to kind of build up a picture kind of all, all off sort of your own your own back really like you're kind of finding these people and and, and you're kind of um having these conversations and, and you sort of start to feel like you've got a command of a subject and you kind of start to feel that you're giving i suppose a voice you know if you have rung them up or messaged them on facebook or sat down with them you know um in, in leeds city center at you know 1am on a student night then they'd, they'd sort of um never be heard and yet Two weeks later, you know, they're in a national paper and, 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 and being talked about and getting a point of view across. So, so, so those kind of really wide-ranging pieces, um, I, I always feel proud of because it's, I suppose it's just normal people um, talking about stuff that's important. Um, yeah, so maybe, <laughs> I haven't said Henry Cavill, maybe I should just say actually normal people talking about stuff that's important. That, that, yeah. that, that feels a bit, a bit more right to me. Yeah. That, 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 I want to come back to that, mate, and come back to the um, the, the stuff on campus. Um, but with that Henry Cavill, do you think that was something that you was like, I don't know, it's, from, for me, for how you explained it, it seemed like something that you'd hope for as a youngster, you know, like to know like the actor is engaged in, in, in the actual role of Superman and is just loving it. And, you know, it seems like the sort of like, um, I don't know, like the desired sort of like outcome of, 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 of what he would be. Do you think that was like the sweet spot for him and, and you enjoyed that because of that? Yeah, and, and I think, you know, I think perhaps you get a little, a little bit cynical as a, as, as a journalist when you meet lots and lots of people in these sorts of jobs and, um, you know, sometimes they're kind of, people can be slightly agonised that they're successful. And then equally, people can feel slightly agonised that they're not as successful as they should be. Do you know I mean uh, particularly mm-hmm. with with actors, particularly with British actors, there is a sense of like either they're doing really, really well, and you're like, isn't that class? And they're like, oh well, you know, oh gosh. Or they're kind of like maybe not doing as well as the other guy, mm-hmm. and they're just chippy about it. So to kind of after you know fifteen years of of, of that, to sit down with someone who's like, I get paid loads of money to get ripped and, um, you know, fight with swords and it's brilliant. And I take all my mates on holidays 
And um, yeah, it's just really good. And uh, I love it. And everyone who read it was just like, he seems really nice. And it's like, I know it was not a particularly deep, deep and meaningful thing, but just to, I suppose, encounter someone who's just, um, you know, I suppose unguarded in that way was, for me, class. But equally, I guess, uh, you know, if I didn't have the job of having to speak to lots of people like that, then maybe it, it would have been less impactful. Is it, does it surprise you, like, that there's the, the sort of missing that spot, these, these, these successful people? And is there anyone where you've, you've, you've sort of interviewed them where they've got that sort of glint in their eye and, you know, they, they sort of, I don't know, just, just seem like the Yoda of the acting world or, you know, like the, the sort of, they, they, they've, they've sort of, they've, they've, they've hit it or they've hit the nail on the head, if, if you know what I mean. Yeah, I'm, uh, I mean, what, apart from you. <laughs> yeah. don't get Chris started on that man. oh my god yeah, I thought it w- wouldn't take long until it's on the sweepstakes Stevie to bring up his acting career well, well if no one's heard I'll, I'll say I'll talk about it again but no I'm joking I can't, I can't go through that and talk yeah, I mean, so, you know when you're doing <clears throat> actors or musicians you, you essentially you're kind of um, it, it, there's a bit of a contract in that unless they're just going to talk about, you know, the stuff that you really want to talk about, which is, you know, going to be things that go beyond author, the lighting technician did a brilliant job on that, on this film, or, you know, I just, um, I found the role really sort of stimulating, you know, that kind of stuff. We like, uh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, I'd rather know what we had for tea. Sure, like, stuff, yeah. Yeah. Um, mm. but you do sometimes encounter people, um, you know, um, about a few years ago, I interviewed, uh, Serene McKellen, right? And um, I just went to his house, like, and there's no kind of you, 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 you probably know what's coming, <laughs> and there's no sort of PR or there's no manager or anything like that. And we just sat down, and he, he just um, gave me like a massive slice of chocolate cake and a big mug of tea, and he just sort of talked about whatever I asked him, you know, just kind of mm-hmm. literally just like always oh, overlooking the Thames, he's waving at the sailors going past, they wave back at him. It was just like the nicest afternoon. And did he uh, open with, um, I know what you're thinking, how do I act? As soon as he mentioned him, I thought, no way. Yeah. <laughs> as he got I mean, out. What he did do was, he was very generous. He was, I think, and as you get people, essentially get older towards the end. It's like in life, they don't really give a, you know, because what, what am I possibly going to write? It's like, oh, I'm sorry, you can't, you know, I'm going to take away all your money and all your rewards because mm-hmm. you said something off colour to a, a time journalist. This is not going to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and just as, as I left, I was like, oh, you know, I didn't want to say anything, but like um, me and my dad were both really big Lord of the Rings fans. So it's a real pleasure to kind of, you know, meet Gandalf. And he just said, stay where you are. Don't move. <laughs> and he ran downstairs <laughs> and then he came back up with like a uh, Gandalf's hat and Gandalf sword, and he said, "Right, put oh this." Oh my on. god! Oh, and he um he said, "Right, stay there, stay there." And uh, he, uh, give me your phone, and he took some photographs of me with Gandalf's gear on. And he said, "Right, right <laughs> now you send that to your dad." And uh, I was like, "Yeah," <laughs> it's like I just got <laughs> okay. to wear yeah. Gandalf's hat and hold his sword, and you know, I, I'm normally allergic to that kind of stuff because yeah. I just am. But on this instance, I was kind of like, "Oh, this is." Not a terrible job. Yeah, because you were that laid back with it. I thought you were going to say you were going to come out with flipping You Shall Not Pass from Lord of Rings or something. I, I just, mean, I think if I'd asked him... You, do you think he would probably, have? Yeah, I'm sure he would have. 
that's class. Yeah, that's so that's so cool. Yeah. yeah, what a cool guy. Just just laid yeah. back. I like it. Um, and yeah, what? Sorry, what, what was the question? <laughs> uh, I think I think you nailed it. I was just asking about that actor with you know that you might oh, careful yeah. and, and his attitude. And mm. I, th- I think the wider point on that is that, that that is how a lot of us should be, right? Like mm. when I think about my day to day life and some of the 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 jobs I've had where I haven't enjoyed as much and just thinking about like my family and the jobs they've had to do my family you know come from Ireland and doing laborers and farmers and my grandparents had hardship I never imagined like the fact that I could complain that I get a bit of writer's block one day it's just you know I, I feel like I'm getting much better at it and I'm yeah. not I, I feel incredibly lucky like even I don't want to say anything to but you know at the moment a lot of people in my industry are very upset about the situation around covid and um how the, the arts industry is going to look and theater and writing and i can understand it but i yeah. just can't feel too upset about because i still think i got a payout from the government to carry on you know supporting me as someone who writes plays and writes theater how could i ever complain like if i said that to my granddad or something he'd just be like you've just been given money to to carry on like you know, trying to be a writer. Like it's not even, wasn't even on the radar for any other people. So, oh, yeah, yeah, I like that Henry Cavill's like that. Like, that's that's nice to hear. Yeah, yeah. And, and I'm, I'm, you know, it is a dream job and I'm so lucky to, to, to be doing it. Like, I absolutely don't take it for granted, even when it's difficult. It's like, the only difficult thing is just having to write, which is sort of my job. So I can't, I mean, I can't really complain to anybody because it's sort of like, well, yeah, but that's sort of what you're, you're, you're getting paid to do. Like, um, so I, you have to remind yourself that you enjoy it. That is what you wanted to do. Yeah, mm-hmm. I know it's class. Like, and, and, and I think, um, I, I think across, you know, in, in, in life in general, you can kind of, um, you can tell the people who still enjoy it and the people who kind of maybe sometimes lose sight of that. But, you know, I've even just kind of having to sit down to think about what I'd possibly say to, you know, tonight. I was just sort of making myself chuckle because it's like I have done some pretty, you know, mm. if, if I sort of say so, not because I'm brilliant, but just because the situations that you find yourself in and the things that you, the opportunities you get given that you never imagined, just because it's this sort of slightly strange, amorphous job, you know, that there isn't really a kind of, um, there isn't really a, a, a ladder, there aren't loads of exams that you have to take or kind of, as far as I'm aware of, secret handshakes that you have to do, although there may be some um and I, I i think that's something that this is like it'd be good to kind of get across is that it, the barriers to entry you know, is something that you can sort of start doing off your own back if uh, if you're interested in it you know it's something that you can sort of start to kind of um do yourself really you know whenever i speak to you younger people go to schools or or, or you know people who are kind of interested in, in, in how to sort of get into it it's people often seem sort of surprised that <clears throat> there's not like a kind of official pathway, you know, it's not like being a, like a lawyer or a surgeon or something. It's like you, you sort of can just start, start doing it if you feel comfortable kind of, you know, emailing people and phoning people and asking questions and mm-hmm. being polite, but persistent and stuff. It's, it's not one of these things where it's like, well, I couldn't do that because, because what, you know, there's so many different flavors of, of, of writer or journalist from you know from what you do to what i do to people who write sports reports to people who do you know um mm. you know who, who work a crime beat 
it, it's um there's so many people who never considered becoming a journalist who would be brilliant at it because it's not just about writing you know like uh there's people who just you know like i was saying before just great at talking to people just making people want to speak to them you know and you don't have to be a brilliant writer if, 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 if you've got that skill you know if you can sort of um you know get people feeling comfortable then that'll take you really far and there are probably people that you know in life who've got those skills but would never sort of think oh well maybe i could um you know, maybe I could start writing, you know, for newspaper, for magazines, for websites and stuff. So I, I, don't, I always like to kind of um, encourage people to at least sort of consider it, you know, or, or, or get in touch if they have questions because I'll, I'll, I'll always speak to people. That's brilliant. That's brilliant, mate. Could could you um, could you sort of emphasise some of the more, um, what was it, scary scary times or the more frantic times that you you've you've been on the job but i know you uh you went you had a visit to nairobi could you tell us a bit about that yeah i mean I, i'm not someone who's kind of you know done war reporting or you know been you know to the front line or anything like that mm-hmm. you know so um there are people who could sort of say oh well you know <laughs> i was kidnapped and shot and stuff like that um i suppose it's more just kind of contrasting what i thought it was that i wanted to do which was you know, speak to pop stars for music magazines. And, and then, you know, I found myself in a job in Nairobi. This was probably about uh, 12 years ago. And um, we sort of finished the job. And I was with a photographer who was, um, uh, he was one of these guys who was is much older and he'd been to it, he'd been everywhere, been to war zones, you know, he'd been kind of all over the country, do, you know, all over the world doing sort of pretty heavy stuff. And he sort of said to me, like, oh, look, I've got the project I want to do. I want to go speak to some people. Will you come with me? I was like, yeah, okay, yeah, sounds good. Because um, I was like 27 or something. And um, we sort of go to this place <laughs> that was abandoned and guarded and speak to these guys with beards. Uh, and I had no idea what was going on. And I, I don't want to say that there was some sort of cell, but they kind of seemed like there was some sort of cell. And um, they were asking this photographer, like, you know, who, do you have contacts? Uh, and he was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I've got you know, people in the UN. You know, people in the US military, and they're like, okay, okay. And they sort of talk about five minutes. And I was just sat there, like, just sucking my thumb, like, what am I doing here? <laughs> and they sort of, then eventually, sort of, this guy pointed at me and said, What about you? You know, have you got contacts? And I was just sort of like, uh, <laughs> I've, I've interviewed Taylor Swift. Is that, yeah. is that helpful? <laughs> like, no. And they just sort of looked at me like, you know, Gandalf. You need Gandalf. Yeah, Gandalf. That, that was pre-Gandalf. I think if I could, if I could, if I could bust out Gandalf, I think that'd have that'd have been interesting. Yeah, yeah. I think um, that might have been like an ultimate kind of peace move. <laughs> yeah, I, I could have solved a lot of problems. Um, what a change so, conversation. Yeah. Yeah. So I, just when you kind of like, there's this is um, there has been an, like some kind of administrative error and like I, I'm not meant to be here, um, but you know I'm I'm here to talk about it now. It was fine in the end. Um, it was just again just thinking like I didn't actually sort of tell anyone that this is where I'm going or that you know I'm not even sure what the photographer's called <laughs> um, it was fine though it was alright it's, it, it's more to be honest kind of like the I feel that a lot of careers are quite structured in the sense that you know what you're going to be doing like you have lots of meetings you'll know what your diary is going to be like you know what any given week or any given month is going to be, you might be building up to a particular presentation or a conference or there's a project you've got to deliver. Whereas the thing that's taken me quite, I never really get used to it, it's just the kind of how on the fly a lot of this job is. Mm. You know, I remember dropping my kid off at 
well, one of my children, sorry, my kid, remember dropping my children off at nursery and just getting a call from an editor being like, can you go to central London to interview Pele in like two hours? And I was like, uh, yeah, probably, you know, yeah, no, I can. Yeah, I can do it. Yeah, yeah, that's fine. And then you're sort of in this sort of slight, sort of strange thing. You're walking down the street thinking, I'm, I'm going to go interview Pele and no one knows. <laughs> like, you know, I'm just dropping <laughs> the kids off and you want to sort of tell like the no key work, like, yeah, just off to do Pele, but it's not. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And yeah, again, it's one of these, you, you, you build up this kind of idea of it, like, this, this will probably change my life forever because I'm going to interview Pele. And then I kind of got to this place <laughs> and you wait around for like about three hours. And uh, finally someone brings out Pele and he sits down and you kind of say, oh, hi, Pele, <laughs> you're right. <laughs> and uh, he just looks at you and they're like, oh, no, he doesn't, he doesn't speak English. And you're like, well, well I only speak English. And uh, I'm meant to be interviewing him, so I don't really know what to do. And they yeah. said, well, just see how you get on. And after about five minutes, it was just sort of, it was like visiting someone in a care home because he's just like, you're all right. <sighs> yeah. Like, like football <laughs> just like yeah. looking at me and uh, in the end I was just like okay well that's been great that's really good yeah it's going to be brilliant. it's going to be such a good piece and uh, I got a photo of him actually and then um, I just left and, and I just said yeah he, he, I, I don't speak Portuguese he didn't speak English so <sighs> um, and this was all in, the, all in this space for about sort of three and a half hours so you know like I say it's not being in war zones but it can be a bit of a roller coaster just in terms of um you know your emotions and what you expect you have to do on any given day. <laughs> it's a roller coaster of emotions, mate. Definitely. Did did did, did you think shit? Do I know a translator or can I, you know, try and make make make, make some <laughs> out of it? I think I got to the point where it became so clear that even if he did speak English, all he was going to say is, you know, football is life. Yeah, life is football. Uh, you know, buy some Viagra. You know. I scored loads of goals and no one will ever score more. And uh, so it was one of these things where it's kind of like, um, yeah, I think you just have to sort of give up as a bad job, really. Well, it's quite, quite a nice uh, segue into your Harry Kane interview. Uh, did, oh, yeah. did, I think you, did you allude to the fact that, you know, uh, he wasn't very responsive or, or more that like the people around him or that they have such a kind of... Uh, you know, they can't really go off script, if you know what I mean. Like they'll just say, yeah, no, it's great at the moment, enjoying my... It's hard to get anything like that, you know, to get to a real story with them. Yeah, yeah. So I think, um, you know, I, I really liked Harry Kane when, when I interviewed him. This was a couple of years ago when he was sort of, sort of still this slight fairy tale figure of like, when's this guy going to stop scoring goals, you know, for his home, sort of, you know, for, for, for his boyhood club. Mm. Um, and yeah, like... You know these people are mega mega valuable, and they don't stand to gain anything by really sort of um, mm. just being off the cuff or being kind of a, uh, you know, just sort of being totally honest about anything that you ask them. You know, it, it and and this was made really apparent to me when I, when I kind of arrived. He was at some um, primary school in Morthamstow doing some healthy eating thing or something, and um, literally from the FA, sort of personal agents, from a supermarket chain that he was kind of, you know, doing this healthy eating stuff with. And that was just, again, like, I ended up in this primary school classroom, essentially having to pitch to these people why I should be allowed to interview Harry Kane. And it's just, 
I'd spent all this time psyching myself up to kind of like, you know, think of good questions to ask. And then there's just these sort of phalanx of suits sort of trying to find a reason not to let me do it. And um, I kind of just felt like I was selling a timeshare to them or something because I was just, I felt so sleazy. Um, and in the end, I just kind of said, look, you know, Harry Kane scores loads of goals and that's interesting. And then they kind of went for that. Um, and then you, you kind of meet these people, these sports people. And again, it's everybody knows that there is a tendency to kind of speak in cliche or revert to the kind of sort of lowest common denominator responses. And, and, and what I've definitely learned is that this isn't their fault. You know, it, it doesn't necessarily pay um, athletes to kind of be mega emotionally introspective or available. You know, I think they do have to be bulletproof to a degree. And so then kind of being like, oh, well, you know, I did have, a, I suppose my relationship with my dad was quite difficult. And I was, they're not going to sort of do that, mm. you know, really, like 99% of the time. So I guess what, what I found the challenge and it becomes just sort of trying to find a way to just have ordinary people, you know, readers just get some sense of traction, you know, on, on, on these figures that they know because they see them all the time, they're, you know, on match of the day or on the side of buses and stuff. Um, just sort of trying to find ways to kind of make them seem less distant. Um, and I think in the case of Harry Kane, I think it was going kind of badly. And then I sort of said, oh, he was just going, I really like scoring goals. And I was like, well, yeah, <laughs> like everyone likes scoring goals. Like, and I said, oh, do you, you know, if you go past some balled up socks on your bedroom floor, do you boot them like against the radiator and then sort of celebrate? And he was like, yeah, yeah, always. And then all of a sudden, everything kind of just <laughs> relaxed a bit because it's like, well, however different we are, in the sense that you're a professional football player and I'm not, we, we, we have got something in common that we both do this pathetic <laughs> thing. And once we'd established that, it was a lot easier. But it's just, I suppose it just speaks to that problem of just sort of trying to find a way to, when it comes to, to athletes, no offence, Stevie, just to get, I mean, actually you've got the opposite problem of just to kind of make them kind of talk about their feelings a bit more. What, what was... What, actually, yeah, uh, Steve, this, this is one for you, actually. I always, uh, I know I used to kind of try and, tell you to you know there's kind of like post-game sky sports things i always wanted you to just go completely off the cuff and be like start referencing quantum theory or something and like <laughs> influencing yeah. your gameplay that game or just just, yeah. just drop in some brent quotes or do uh just do yeah. something different but oh man uh, i don't know I, I it just feels so repetitive i'm sure you must find that steve right that, like yeah. saying oh, how did it go today yeah it's something i always thought like even i mean you know I think I always thought that as a fan watching it, do you know what I mean? Especially, you know, match at day or whatever. I used to watch it and I'd be like, there's nothing else to it. Like, surely there's, there's more to this than just kicking on to next week and, you know, picking ourselves up or whatever. Um, and I think that was sort of, must have been um, a thought that I continue to have um, going forward. Um, and then sort of, you know, doing my own interviews, I think. To a degree, it'd probably, you know, be sort of similar to those. But then I think as I've gone on further, it's sort of, all right, what what, what sort of fun can you have with this? Mm. Or what, is there a bit I, more that you can give? I do sort of get the sense that that's changing a little bit. I do, I, I, I kind of, I'm, I'm getting the sense that maybe younger sports people, uh, you know, uh, millennial or, 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 or younger, maybe kind of feel like they want to say something a bit more. Um, mm. you know uh, and and 
I think they take themselves and their feelings, and this probably applies to younger younger people more generally. But you know, they 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 take them sort of seriously, and maybe that's reflected a bit. You know, I mean, stuff like Marcus Rashford, for example. Mm. You know, I think there might just be a, a, a willingness to kind of for people to put their heads over the parapet a bit in a way that you couldn't mm. necessarily imagine. You know, Alan Shearer or someone like yeah, that yeah. doing. Um, so, so you know, from my perspective and from my perspective, I think I think that that's hopeful. Um, it's 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 weird. It's a weird one to think about, isn't it? Because I guess things are opening up a bit more in terms of social media and exposure, and whether it's because they can sort of control their own message a little bit, or um, you know, whether athletes can, um, yeah, I don't know, sort of manage their own um, outlets. I'm not sure, but you know, you think it'd be the reverse. You'd think that people would tighten up a little bit more as things get more open. Um, but I say it's the reverse. Yeah, I mean, I think what I'm really conscious of, and and definitely the people who I interview are, is that you, you're going. It's not a normal thing to sit down and speak to somebody who you've never met. You don't know them at all. They're going to ask you stuff that could be quite personal or could be kind of you know profound or what, hopefully, and then they're going to go away and interpret it how they want, and then write about it and publish it in a newspaper and put it on the internet like that that like that is weird like that's not a normal thing to, to do or to happen to yourself it's weird yeah yeah and and and, and I'm, I'm you know nobody's more aware of that than me because you, you know you have to kind of you go into the, these you know whether it's a room or a telephone conversation and you kind of you sort of can't pretend it's a chat because it, as much as you want it to be like a nice chat because you're only human and it's nice to have nice chats with people and to feel that you get on and that you've got stuff in common and or whatever. Like it, it, if there've been so many times in my life I've, I've interviewed someone and just kind of just had a nice chat with them and it's been fine and lovely and we've got on and then you go and listen to it back and you're like, that's so boring. Like who, who wants to listen to me having a nice chat with someone when really that's not the job and i think what it took me a while to kind of fully grasp is that you know when you're you know interviewing somebody whether it's you know samuel l jackson on the phone for 20 minutes from la or whether it's you know in person you, you know people who have got you know real things that have happened to them and and, and be like really this is an interview and it's going to go in the newspaper and the kind of stuff we're probably going to talk about is this and that you, you're almost kind of having to just kind of drop any pretense that it's anything other than this kind of sort of collaborative, technical, professional <laughs> interaction. You know, it's not kind of, you know, a chat over a drink. It's kind of like, and I will talk about this and what I'm interested in is that. And it's excruciating when you first sort of do that because you're kind of bursting this bubble. Um, but then also what you then find is that it serves you quite well because you, you've kind of almost sort of said, look, we, we, we're doing this interview, we're going to talk about these sort of subjects. And if there's stuff that you feel weird about, or if there's stuff that, you know, I, I you think I've got wrong in the stick about, or that I'm getting wrong, then just sort of say, like, don't be polite. You know, it took me a very long time to kind of realize that just setting things up like that in the long run it's, it's 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 far more productive than just sort of pretending that you're pals right up until the point you have to say 
Oh yeah, and and wasn't there that thing where you um you know got you know chained to a lamppost and painted pink or something? You do something that's just embarrassing. And I was like, hang on, like I thought we were mates. And I think if you can kind of establish sort of early on that you're not really mates, but you, you want to do a good job, then that's uh, that's quite helpful. And, and and that does probably apply to, to to quite a few quite a few things in life. You know, whatever you do, um, not not just being a not just being a journalist. Uh, is it, has there been any moments like that that you can think of, Ben, which has is, is got a bit airy or like, you know, has sort of gone out of context of what it's been like before? Yeah, so people are like generally like always really want to know who's the worst person, like who's the biggest dickhead that you've done, who's, who was awful. And like, honestly, hand on heart, I've been doing this for, you know, for, uh, over 16, 17 years. And most people are like totally fine. <laughs> like it's really, really disappointing that that people I can't sort of say, oh yeah, so and so was just a nightmare. What a diva sort of thing. Mm, Stevie um, Ward. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> he would not keep his shirt off. Like I was just kind of. Tell me about it. But like by and large, like people I have found, whether it's people that you're interviewing on the street for news pieces or knocking on doors or cold calling or you know meeting at the four seasons hotel because they're like a megastar most people are like on, honestly all right and maybe some people disagree maybe just like you know been really rude or been really kind of like you know giving me a hard time and I, I often sort of try and work out why that is and I think a big part of it's probably because for most of the work that I do I'm doing it for the times and whether you read it or not or whether you you, you kind of rate it as a a, a newspaper or a brand it, it does have a degree of cachet like they're not just talking to me they're talking to somebody who's from this you know uh, mm. the paper record um and certainly when i started out when i was a lot younger people would not necessarily believe that i was the person who'd been sent to kind of you know sent to interview them that I was the man from the times because i didn't necessarily look like a belong there like people would sort of i'm not even joke with like think would sort of give me drinks orders and stuff and i'd be like no i'm i'm, I'm the guy doing it i'm the guy doing the interview <laughs> like, um so so i, I think in, in part um probably because i you know i think if i've been working for maybe a tabloid or maybe like um a, a, a lesser magazine or something people might feel maybe more entitled to kind of maybe not be so um civilized but generally like it's, it's been fine like honestly it has been fine um i've i've never had any uh, any 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 handbags or, or rows or anything um but then you know i'm i'm also quite conflict diverse so <laughs> probably just crawl out the crawl out the room if that happened yeah i mean i, I want to uh, i'm writing a note because i want to i want to come back to um well, let's do it now. Let's let's let, let's speak about Taylor Swift, just because I'm I'm, I'm interested. Um, how did that go? So yeah, that was absolutely fine. This was probably about ten years ago now. So it's just when she was starting to kind of become this, not just a kind of an American proposition, but like a kind of like a real global thing with a kind of you know, it, it, I think it was sort of right when she's becoming this sort of tween age megastar. Like I remember going to this hotel in, in, in the West End of London and there'd been all these teenage girls, like sort of, you know, 12, 13, 14 year old girls outside just beside themselves. And thinking like, all right, that's, you don't sort of see that very often. And weirdly, um, there was no kind of, 
often people, you know, managers or press people try and sort of sit in or kind of vet, you know, what you are. I was literally just in this hotel suite with her for about an hour and she was just totally fine. Just, you know, I mean, I wish I could say something really interesting, but she just was uh, grown up and thoughtful and didn't really object to me asking about, you know, boyfriends and stuff in as much as anyone with a stranger asking about boyfriends and stuff. But um, just sort of came away being like, well, you're either going to be like incredibly successful or um, you're sort of going to vanish. And uh, she was incredibly successful, I think in large part because she was sort of just dead normal. Mm, pretty cool. That's pretty cool. How you much got- of, a, of, a, of a pressure do you feel? Um, and, you know, I think this probably goes down to what organisations you work for, but, uh, you know, well, one of the notes I've got down is to get onto the kind of like what's happened to journalism at the moment yeah. and um, what you've seen in your time. And um, I think it's no secret that there's there's massive issues within journalism. And I was going to get to how we fix that. But do you ever feel a pressure from the whole kind of clickbait, gotcha kind of journalism? We like, right, it's, you know, it's a war of attention. And I might be speaking to this person, but I really need to get something out of this. So I need to guide them. In. I mean, it sounds like that's not your modus operandi at all, but. Um, do, do you feel like you feel more of a pressure to do that now? So say if you had Harry Kane today, you're like, well, I need to get something more meaty or, um, yeah, have you noticed that pressure from externally? I mean, I think I'm very sheltered in the sense that because what I, what I do tends to be kind of long read yeah. type stuff and profile type stuff, there's less of a kind of, I think we're less prey to, to, to those sort of pressures that, that that you describe, which you know, like clearly are there. Um, you know, I think just from a business perspective, I think newspapers are trying to work out where they fit in, and I think what uh, the, the Times has done, and I don't speak out <laughs> speak out of turn, but there's certainly a sense of things just being a bit slower and calmer, and being a uh, it being a place where people can go of their own free will. To you know, because it's sort of there's a paywall, it's subscriber based. Mm. I think people would rather have, um, you know, the, the, the trust of that readership than necessarily be having to kind of, you know, set off fireworks and lights, you know, uh, have sirens and everything to get to get that attention. Um, I think to sort of to get even further to what you're saying, I think definitely just that general sort of trust of the media is kind of something that everyone has to deal with um, in this profession. You know, it's increasingly um, distrusted. You know, online, there are alternative sources sources of information. You know, um, you know, I, I, didn't, I didn't become a journalist to, to be popular. Um, but we rated this, I think I saw a poll that, I think we, we trusted more than, politicians and estate agents but that's about it um and you know i can understand that sometimes but you clearly you know i've got loads of incredibly talented and hard-working colleagues who kind of do amazing things and you know it kind of um it does suck sometimes to sort of have that all sort of chucked out because you know oh well you know journalists would say that it's like well i don't know like you know question what you read in the paper definitely 
but don't be like, oh, and then I saw some guy on YouTube say this. So, you know, that's what I believe. It's like, you've got to exercise a degree of um, judgment and, you know, you can't be incredulous at anything you read in the newspaper because it's in a newspaper and it's the agendas and it's the mainstream media. And then be like, oh yeah, but like my aunt said on Facebook, this, so I, be- and I-, I believe it. Do you know what I mean? It's mm. kind of like, mm. it's fair enough to be kind of um, questioning and cynical about what you read and to kind of ask broader questions about why you're reading it. Like that's healthy, you know, that people should do that. But sometimes it's not all conspiracy and sometimes it's not all a lie. And sometimes actually, you know, um, people spend, you know, journalists spend a lot of time doing, you know, endless freedom of information requests so they can get stuff that we would not otherwise know or you know they do go to places and speak to people that wouldn't otherwise be spoken to i think people do tend to pick and choose the stuff that they sort of want to dismiss because it's in a a, a newspaper and it tends to be stuff that they disagree with do you know what i mean people don't tend to read the the racing pages and say well i'm not going to believe that this horse is good on a you know flat course because it's in a newspaper but it's when it's kind of to do with politics when it's to do with mm. sport then they go oh well, 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 well you know you of course they'd say that so um you know i'm all for people being um being skeptical but i think sometimes you just have to admit that there's nothing to worry about on in in, in every case um yeah but that that's more of a you know I, I don't necessarily get people kind of um giving me a hard time although sometimes you, you be it like you know you meet people at the pub or friends of friends and they say what do you do on the journey oh don't quote me and it's like I'm, I'm no fine <laughs> like you've not said anything interesting like I'm not going to yeah. don't worry about it it's, it's alright yeah um, I don't know if you I don't know if you want to ask anything more on that question but um, I, I wanted to talk to you Ben actually on on this as you were talking you were talking a little bit about sort of the um, athletes um, appetite to be a bit more open nowadays and stuff mm-hmm. and, um, we you know obviously we go way back me and you mate we go way back we go back uh, four years four years four and a bit years yeah, four years yeah. um, and me and Ben chatted at length really around mentality and, and, and the objects objectives of it and um, why it came to exist and and I was just wondering what, from your sort of um, vision, what, what's, where have we moved to now in society compared to back then? Because I remember you, you sort of phrased something which was quite good that we've, that we've used. And, and it did seem, especially for me, uh, that we're at a place in society that um, we're at the tipping point, as, as you coined, the tipping point to sort of um, be a bit more open and be a bit more... Um, yeah, a bit more constructive around mental health and not just sort of, um, you know, tucking it away to be the elephant in the room. Yeah, yeah. I wonder, I wonder, I wonder what what your sort of insight is on that and and, and how we've moved on or progressed. If 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 that's what you think. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's it's a massive question. I think so much of it's generational. You know, I'm I'm 38. I'll be 39 in March, so I'm I'm older than um, maybe a lot of the people. Right here end up interviewing for you know more kind of um don't say trend type pieces but you know kind of more state of the nation so i'll you know interview teenage boys about feminism or i've had to write you know um about you know young men's attitude towards sex and relationships and stuff and and it's a learning experience because i'm not writing about me and my mates i'm writing about people who are you know sort of 10 15 years younger than me um 
I think it, so. I think there's an emotional availability and, and a willingness to talk about um, themselves, which you, you could interpret in some ways as um, I don't want to say narcissistic, but there's a kind of a people don't seem squeamish, you know, and people about sort of sharing their feelings mm-hmm. or their views, and people seem quite confident in their feelings and views. Like I'm talking about people I've encountered. And I think the internet's kind of absolutely massive on that because you can find so much stuff to reinforce whatever it is, you know, for, for good or bad, whatever it is that you, that you feel and believe, or, or, or you can find stuff that takes you down a path, you know, again, positive, negative, whatever, mm. that, that reinforces and, and, and validates, I suppose, a lot of the things that you feel. Um, I don't... So I, I think that's a big part of it. Um, and then it becomes just inertia. You know, once people get into the habit of doing it, sharing how they feel, you know, online, in real life. But I think, on again, on talking about how you feel online, the people I follow on Twitter, I, I, I work out they're younger than me because they're just talking about how they're feeling. And that's, that shouldn't be weird. But, you know, if they're feeling low or depressed or kind of um, anxious, and stuff and it's not it's not weird to them and that is still you know i'm not proud to say that's still weird to me um i might kind of broach it with a friend after enough you know after i've had enough drinks and stuff but it's just just to have that kind of confidence and fluency it's like this is not a big but why would this be a big deal it's like talking about you know it's not talking about like a you know like what i'm benching it's not talking about you know, like a new recipe I'm trying. So it, 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 it just seems to be baked in to how people operate. And um, again, I, I can't offer a kind of smoking gun sort of a thesis for it because obviously like all these things are complicated and lots of the factors. But I just think, you know, the internet, like people can talk with strangers. People can, you know, get information that uh, you, you know, validates them. And I think that's a, a really big part of it you know uh I, 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 but again uh someone probably kind of email in saying no no you're wrong but that, that that that's my take on it yeah have you got all on that chris um yeah i mean look it's a whole massive area isn't it the kind of disinformation and, and misinformation is just rife and, and the whole covid uh thing has just brought that all to a, to a head especially online um just thinking of my own timeline i'm sh- i'm sure this is from conversations i've had and what i've seen in other uh, mediums it's kind of representative of what it's like out there but the way conspiracy theory has started to seep into people i probably didn't expect as much um and that everything's so polarized like if, if say for example um and I, i'm not at all anti-vax but say i had a question i said oh well maybe we should look at how quickly it's been uh, put through. Immediately, you're in the anti-vax camp. Um, when actually, if you actually look into it, the, the time, they've done every, they've done all the correct steps. It's just that there's so much money now and a lot of the time is just spent waiting on forms and admin and everything's been followed cor- correctly and this is the real deal. But hmm. if you just ask the wrong question or you, you're one camp or the other, and uh, and the social media kind of feeds rule in either reinforce one view to you and just show you that view 
um, and it's very hard to hear the other. And uh, look, social media is not a great way to to converse. Anyway, I did philosophy, and I, I think it, it it pays to be naturally sceptical. But I always came to philosophy in conversations, um, actually wanting to kind of have my mind changed and to be quite open to that, and that not being a shameful thing. Whereas I think online, if you People just double down. Even they present that there was a study where even when people are presented with a fact that disproves their point, an actual fact, they double down harder in most cases. Um, so that it's almost pointless getting involved with online debates, but it seems to be where all the debate is happening now. Yeah. And or perhaps, it, it, yeah. Sorry, go on. Go on no, no, please. I was just saying, like, but perhaps I'm falling for the trap of thinking that Twitter is representative of the wider public, and maybe most people don't really care about what those arguments are. I think that's partly true, but I think also this kind of um, distrust and and disinformation is is a wider problem. I think one of the things which I've, uh, kind of on that point, I've I've, I've realised I really appreciate about a lot of what I've been sort of able and allowed to do is when you do get to spend a lot of time digging into like a a particular subject, um, you know, that might be divisive or, or controversial. You know, for example, like I wrote a big piece, you know, I suppose examining the way in which, you know, drill music kind of um, maps on to sort of violent knife crime and stuff. And there's people who tell you, you know, you know, it's, it's devil music, it's killing kids. And there's other people telling you the exact opposite. <clears throat> and then sort of having, you know, been allowed the space and time to kind of go and have these conversations with people, to speak to um, not just people who've had their lives affected by it, but then also like, you know, there are lots of people out there who actually, it's their job to research stuff. And we don't really hear a massive amount from them because the, the, the nature of dedicating your life to researching a, a, you know, a fairly narrow subject doesn't sort of lend itself to kind of sort of being shouted from the rooftops. Um, so in, 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 you know, pieces that I'm, I'm often right, I'll always try and find these people <clears throat> who've kind of spent a lot, a lot of time just doing field work and researching these things, you know, so for, 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 for the knife crime piece, you know, you speak to a, 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 someone who's, you know, from an estate in Birmingham, but become an academic and literary researchers, like, you know, how music impacts on gang violence in the UK. And you sort of speak to them for an hour and you, you sort of come away being like, I've just spoken to someone who just knows this sort of thing inside out. Same with, that's why a, a big thing about, you know, screen time. And computer games, you know, are they kind of, is it rotting kids' brains and stuff? Because loads of people will tell you, yeah, absolutely is. And then you speak to this guy from like <clears throat> the Internet Research Institute at Oxford, who's like, oh yeah, I literally spent my entire life charting how much harm, you know, being on your iPad or playing on your PlayStation does. And it doesn't do you any harm. Like, it just doesn't. And people don't want to hear that. But it, it really, really like doesn't, you know, it is no worse to you than like, you know, skipping breakfast in the scheme of things. It just, it's not a big thing. Um, and I suppose what I'm saying is that, you know, being able to kind of speak to people who have just know something inside out and who actually have their finger on the pulse of these kind of controversial things. Again, it's like a massive privilege because it's like, well, I don't know that. Like it would take me forever to kind of work that stuff out. But, you know, these people are out there and they're publishing stuff. And if you really care about an issue, then, then you can find it. But again, like you said, the problem is, is you know would you ever be directed to it if you're already skeptical i don't know um i suppose sort of uh yeah if if i didn't have a sort of professional sort of onus on doing this you know i don't know what to think about half these things
Yeah, that's true. I suppose you know the 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 Twitter world is is sort of skimming on the top of the surface of of, of many of these features that you spoke about, Ben. But there'll be a lot of people talking that have no idea about you know the actual substance behind it, and and um, of just merely repeating some of that they're sort of confirming or that the friends have confirmed. I feel really sorry for the um uh the the, the Times Science correspondent, the guy called Tom Whipple, who's a you know brilliant journalist. There's loads about science. There's loads of people who know loads about science, and he's constant, just in this, especially over the past few months, it's constant battle of just kind of like, no, no, like this is true, you know, whether it's to do with COVID or whatever. Um, and he, he does it all with with, with a good humour, but you, you only need to kind of sort of look at what the sort of stuff these conversations he's having, and you're kind of like, well, yeah, I know sometimes journalists aren't the most honest necessarily constantly, and I know that. Maybe they're, uh, you know, big state, you know, acting in certain ways at times. But, but but this is totally fine. Like, it's fine to get vaccinated. Like, it's, you know, COVID is killing people. Like, and, and this it's become this guy's life just to kind of, like, remind people that, you know, what's actually happening. Mm. I couldn't do that. Yeah, yeah. A constant, that's a constant battle, isn't it? A constant battle, mate. Um, and I'm really interested in, in, in sort of one of the features that, that you, that you spoke about Ben and that was on, on campus um, the sort of rise in, in rape culture on, yeah. on campus could you tell us a bit about that mate what what you found out what was the sort of um, yeah I don't know culture culture there and, and, and yeah yeah so I mean this was a while ago um, probably about six five or six years ago that um, that I did it uh, was this when Lad uh, Bible again, it's just when Lad Bible were actually what the, what so, yeah so I think this is this is when in the wake of websites like Lad Bible mm. you know uh, getting you know hundreds of thousands of likes and responses for kind of you know it's not rape if you shout surprise um, that you know sort of content that was really popular with a young male audience that was you know uh, at best sort of derogatory and, and off color and and that worse just essentially uh, creating this sort of feeding into this sort of psychological landscape really where you know all women are consumable you know they're all there to be rated um you know all there to be kind of almost um audited uh on these websites like rate my shag you know kind of um uh, just this kind of increasingly toxic um you know secret facebook groups where you know photos share you know just kind of you know without putting too fine a point on it yeah like it was, it was rape culture a culture in which these probably quite nice largely middle class teenage boys going to university and just acting like you know essentially like, like the women that they're the young women that they were around uh, were sort of there for their pleasure or to be mocked or laughed at or whatever you know um and you know it, it correlated exactly with reported instances of you know sexual assault and it was essentially a a piece which tried and you can, you can never leave the last word on it but i suppose giving readers just a sense of what was happening and sort of trying to speak to people about why and again it was hard to retain some sort of critical distance of it because obviously you're kind of you're speaking to these girls so yeah no, I, I get upskirted you know it's, it's standard you know i'll get people sticking there on student nights on a tuesday night i'll get you know it, it'd be 
I don't know, a single girl that's not had a guy stick their hand down their knickers, you know, a stranger pissed up. Yeah. And you kind of think, oh, no, am, am I like really sort of sheltered? Because that, you know, speaking, I, I had to go back and speak to all my female friends from universities. Would this sort of happen to you? Mm. Maybe once or twice over three years. And then, yeah, so it was really a case of just trying to speak to as many people as I can to try and get a sense of, you know, what and why. Um, and again, it wasn't something that I was like, oh, this is brilliant. I love doing it. But equally, the, the end result was something that, yeah, I, I, was, I was proud of. And it was one of the pieces that <clears throat> um, I, I was nominated for Feature Writer of the Year in that year. And that, that was one of the one of the three pieces that they put forward for that. Um, so that was good in the sense that, you know, I kind of felt that I was digging into something real. Um, yeah. Yeah. I don't know. It just, it just seemed to be um, a time, didn't they? Probably around the, the time that you mentioned six, seven years ago when it was, yeah, Lad Bible probably started surfacing and, and all that started sort of, um, I don't know, coming to a head. And, I heard a really um, interesting, in one of the people I spoke to about it, she was essentially saying that it, it, a lot of it does tie into, um, I mean, apart from, you know, the, the ubiquity of online porn, that's like a massive thing, you know, like in, in, in the sense that there's a generation of young men who've grown up with, you know, anything they want to see um, on their phones, you know, from a young age mm-hmm. and the kind of how that warps, um, you know, ideas of consent, you know, it, it warps what, what uh, people think sex looks like and i think it also one of the things that people let me think about but just the compressed time scale in which in a porn video someone will go from encountering someone to having sex with them it's like it doesn't happen in like two minutes like in real life it doesn't but there are a lot of people who think well i've seen it like it does you know you deliver pizza and then sort of two minutes later you're sort of having a threesome that's and it's like these things, which unless I think sometimes you can't see the wood for the trees. But I think the just final point on on, on this was, you know, the introduction of you know prop, of essentially having to pay far more tuition fees. It, universities become more expensive. Um, people, there's this sense that the culture has become more as it's become more expensive, it's become more competitive, it's become less communal, it's become in a sense less caring people feel that they're in competition with each other that all their grades are you know more important than ever and that's where this idea of kind of i suppose sort of sexual auditing kind of comes in of you know oh well you know she's a seven or you know four and this idea of everyone sort of rating everybody else um so the theory goes taps into this kind of increasingly sort of callous metric obsessed vision of version of university rather than the kind of like student loan everyone sat around drinking cans sort of dossing kind of and not really worrying about their grades so much um, yeah did, did, did you speak to any guys during that, that yeah 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 so i spoke to um so i went to oxford and there was this initiative called the good lad initiative that they essentially try and do intervention work with sports teams um and male groups of students and just kind of like sort of saying that and I think it was run by an Aussie guy who'd been in sports teams and I think he just hadn't realised basically just how badly that they'd been behaving you know and so I think you know they would get 
teams to kind of, and they'd have to volunteer to begin with. I think now it's compulsory, but at the time, they say, right, we're going to do this workshop about, you know, how, you know, how we behave around women, which is a sort of hard sell because, mm. you know, it's like being a, all dog owners think they're responsible dog owners, don't they? Like, no one's like, oh, actually, I'm probably an irresponsible dog owner, but not everyone is. So there's going, you can't just get people to sort of um, self-identify as sort of potential rapists. Mm-hmm. Um, but they, they did, you know, intervention stuff, kind of working through scenarios. And it's sort of sad to kind of say because it, you think, well, this is just so obvious. Like, don't put your hand down people's skirts. Like, you know, if there's a big group of you, don't shout, get your tits out to some girl at a bus stop. It's like, this is not difficult. But I guess the point is, it is when you're in a big group of people and you're away from home and there are social pressures and you want to fit in, it, it actually is, can, can be difficult. And I suppose um, what what uh, this workshop was trying to do is just essentially get give these guys the tools to sort of feel confident enough to say, look, actually, look, what 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 we're doing now is not like like what we're doing now. I, I don't I don't think that's how you should be behaving. Um, so you know, it's fair play to them, but equally, um, I think the fact they had to make it compulsory for so many teams sort of shows that people weren't sort of thinking, oh, well, this is what I need to do that we need to do. But you know, clearly mm-hmm. they, they needed to do it. I think yeah. that links into to the work we've tried to do at Campus D as well, right? Like that whole toxic side of um, male groups and particularly sports teams uh, used to really annoy me when I was at uni and uh, it sounds like it got worse. I like to think it's getting better now. I think we probably need more research on it. Um, but a lot of the wider conversations and um, the Me Too movement and things like that uh, being in the culture, uh, hopefully people realise, you know, a bit like you, Ben, I can't understand how people don't realise that's not okay from the outset. But I guess pack mentality and young, impressionable people and just if you fall in with that kind of, maybe they just didn't see the, you know, the wood from the trees with it all. But I'd like to think um, that could be shifting. But um, yeah, I mean, it's, it links into stuff we try and do with young men and groups of young men. Yeah. Attitudes to and pornography is a big one. I don't think we talk about that enough. But I think it, we're probably looking at like a, there's a tidal wave of issues that are already starting to hit um, with, uh, you know, with porn and how um, prevalent it is. And particularly the younger and younger people with technology now are getting access to it. And uh, yeah, I feel quite strongly against it. And, have done for a while and um yeah but when i was like young teenager or early 20s it was just like so normal like people um but yeah i, I don't watch anymore and i try and encourage i think it's it's, it's far better not to but no it doesn't get talked about that much particularly on groups of men it's almost like a jokey thing it's like oh it's this thing we all do that um you can't really question and um but yeah, yeah. i think you know there's loads of wider conversations we can have around that stuff i, I, I think particularly with body image stuff you know, like I, I've I've had to write um, pieces about, you know, um, uh, and, and and gym culture and stuff. And I think the way that just growing up watching men in porn films has kind of given a lot of people, y- younger guys, a sense of like how they should look. You know, like um, you know, like I say, I'm I'm close to forty, and in my twenties, I never even thought about you know worried about like having a six pack or kind of like pecs or I, I, I literally wasn't on the radar of any like of any of me and my mates have been weird if it was um but now that's that that's really different and i know porn's not the only reason why 
Um, but it's definitely one of the kind of the big, big contributing factors. Um, I think just what, what, what you were saying, you sort of said something earlier on, like, you know, I can't imagine how, you know, those, those guys would, would need that kind of education. And it's true. Like I, I, I can't, but one of the good things about what I've done over the past 15 years is that there's so many situations where you sort of have to then actually make yourself go, well, okay, well, how could this, how could people end up in this, you know, thought process or how could people end up doing that? You know, maybe I'm kind of making excuses for myself because I'm not particularly strident about many things. So I say, oh, well, you know, I can see both sides of the coin. Maybe I'm just being wishy-washy. But I think it maybe I've also become a bit more adept at kind of like almost as a sort of academic exercise, understanding how and why people can do things or think things or say things that, you know, I might personally sort of disagree with quite strongly. But you sort of have to kind of talk yourself through it to kind of understand it because it's often your responsibility to kind of explain why they do. So that's been a laugh a minute. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, mate, you, you, you're um, you are that sort of vessel or the vehicle in between it. You're in between all this stuff and 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 finding all all the uh, reasons. I think that's you know why you know i think me and chris enjoy this podcast as well because we speak to a massive range of people and um try to be quite um reflective not not sort of like putting our spin on things and, and like to speak to people and, and mm-hmm. sort of enjoy what what we learn from them and um you know <laughs> you've been you've been to to every end of the world to to to, to be that too um yeah I, I, what do you reckon chris is there anything more? There's, there's, a, there's a barrel that we can go into. I don't know. Mate, I've got I've got about <laughs> ten topics still written down. I guess one of them I definitely want to get into, right? Because we actually don't talk about this enough on the pod, and I think um, you know it's one of the biggest issues, particularly for us three, that uh, is uh, in our lives right now. And I think that is the rise of Leeds United. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm born in Leeds. I moved to London at four, but I share a season ticket, and this is just such a fucking good time to be a Leeds fan. Like. <laughs> It don't, I think about it so often, but even recently, <laughs> just watching that Everton game, uh, which I was just watching that game and, you know, I was so wanting us to win, don't get me wrong, but part of me is just thought, even if they nick it, I'm going to be coming back this game so proud. It's like, we've been playing amazing football at the moment. And I, I know you're a Leeds fan, Ben, so sometimes I feel like this is, I just want to get it off my chest and hear, <laughs> uh, hear it reflected back that this is the glory days. This is like, I feel so lucky. <laughs> <laughs> we talk about being honest about your know, emotions and stuff. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm glad you said that because, you know, it's like I've like recently for the past couple of games, I've been watching with uh, my girlfriend. She's a Leeds fan by, um, from the, uh, dad's from Leeds as well. Um, and uh, my, my, my six-year-old son and I'm a four-year-old daughter. And my son got really freaked out because I basically just got really happy. <laughs> I was just like, yeah. like essentially just kind of just being kind of um, in the moment and enjoying myself. And he was just like, what are you doing? I didn't like it. I was like, no, no, it's, I'm just happy. <laughs> like, I'm just really pleased. Um, so I've, I've had to learn uh, under Bielsa to not make like loud sudden noises when watching TV, which is really, as you would know, is like really hard because of the way we play. Um, I mean, I, I, I was 10 when we won the title 
under under Harry Wilkins, and so I was kind of like I didn't really have a like standard chance. Um, and you know, o- over the you know, particularly over the past ten years, you know, I was living in in London, but I was going to this was in the kind of the, like the League One days, you know, the third division, and sort of going to like Swindon on a Tuesday night and losing three 0 and getting rained on or going to like South End or you know all these games that were kind of awful and yet also like mad and I, I really did enjoy it I've got like as much as I love it now and like I'm absolutely not one of those people it's like oh but you know much preferred it in League, league One because I, I didn't I've also kind of like got really really fond memories of that time and like you know getting promoted like you know against Bristol Rovers yeah all that stuff but I think I can enjoy that a lot m- much more now because of what's happening like on the pitch and yeah it's um you just even just online you just sort of see you know these kind of like clips you know pass you know these sort of passing sequences and i'll always watch them i will never kind of like skip them <laughs> yeah i mean because it's kind of like and you just kind of feel like you know if someone tapped you on the shoulder like you know like will smith from men in black and just did that mind erase thing i'd be like that's fine like I, i'll tell you that like as long as i've i've seen this now so if it's all the big kind of you know simulation, if this is the matrix, then that's all right. I, 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 I'll, I'll, t- I'll take the blue pill or whatever, uh, and um, yeah. just keep watching Leeds uh, play one touch stuff. I love it. Yeah, it's it's absolutely insane, isn't it? Really, like when you think about you mentioned the league one days, you think about the generations that of like. I mean, I'm what am I now? Twenty seven. But how many turnovers of teams has been like? Ever since, like, you know, eight years old, since mm. I you know, first started, like, acknowledging what it was, the turnovers of teams and managers and, like, misery and, like, just, like, the hopelessness. And, and it, you just if you, if you sink into that feeling or that sort of, you know, flashback. Mm. But then you put yourself now, like, I was like, beat Everton 1-0 and I, I think they've dropped down the table a little bit but they were a top at league and it's like I, I don't know if you, I don't know if it's because you know you can't go to the games or whatever but I'm saying to Natalie like we just beat Everton 1-0 like mm-hmm. it's it's quite it's, it's I don't know it's quite hard to uh, it's quite hard to believe in it I think like, I was having this conversation with a friend who's a Spurs fan but obviously knows that I'm, I'm reads and we talk about it a lot mm. And I was kind of talking about that thing of like, you know, when we're in the championship and you're like, well, the narrative is, right, the narrative is that we go up, right, eventually. Like my personal little narrative in in my head is that we get back to the Premier League. And then you kind of look at the kind of like, but then you're sort of like, well, but the universe doesn't care about what my internal narrative is. Do I mean, there's absolutely no reason why we would. Mm. You know, it's kind of like, it'd be so Hollywood in a way for us to kind of, for us to do that that it makes you, it, I was sort of scaring myself because it's like, yeah, but only, only three teams can go up, and, you know, each season yeah. and there's 24 teams in the division and there's no, you know, it doesn't have to, like, like if it happens, it's almost like, I, I would just sort of tell myself in knots of like, I, I believe that obviously that's what is meant to happen, but equally looking at the, the cold hard numbers, like, like why should it? So the fact that it has means that, um, yeah, I don't know. Like, it, it, I, I, I feel the same as, as as both of you. You kind of, you almost, 
you want to talk about it loads or just not even mention it. Do you know what I mean? It's kind of like in case it kind of, um, again, there's been like some error and it's like, oh, sorry, there's a mistake. <laughs> and, uh, so, yeah. It's a weird, weird, it's like a dystopian future and we've mm-hmm. flipping, can't, you can't, well, you can't leave the house, but you can't do much if you do leave the house. My, and um, United are uh, tanning teams. <laughs> my, uh, uh, my sister lives in America and um, her daughter's like three years old and she's a, you know, American. And um, but, but they watch all the cover because you know in another I think on LUTV they can watch every game if you're abroad, mm-hmm. and she's like obsessed with Ben Parker. She's like, oh, it's Ben Parker, Ben Parker. Like whenever he's on, so because they watch all the games in the morning and stuff. And I was like, what alternative reality is this? Where like <laughs> like three year old American girl gets really absolutely buzzing to see Ben Parker on telly. And I was just like, oh, that's just um, it's just the funniest thing. It's, mental, like, it's just um like. Some of the, yeah, I, it, I even thinking about, like, I can't stop thinking, my, my weeks are kind of revolving around the games now. Like, the Chelsea game is just on my mind quite a lot. And I was like, if we turn over Chelsea, well, not all the fixtures, like, let's just not get hammered in those games. But now I'm thinking, we're going to turn Chelsea over. I have to kind of catch myself yeah. a bit. I, I got I got a little bit scared, though, when we, we got them four ones on the bounce. Oh, fuck, they've sussed us out here. I thought they've fucking they've, they've, they've caught us out here but then Mate, the fans on Twitter as well if you want to see like f- the fickleness of football fans is just phenomenal oh, well, they, I just well, find it so fascinating people like found out that after the Arsenal game they're saying that was the worst performance you can't believe we can't do anything against teams who play a low block and it's so it's like look at our journey we've been on are we going to uh, beat Chelsea Ben? Uh, no. <laughs> do, do you think we'll play well and lose, though, or do you think we'll get we'll get it handed to us a bit on the break? Or yeah, no, I, I, I think we'll um, I think we'll play well. I think we'll lose, um, and I think that would be it. That's what I'm going to say. I think we'll probably lose about two 0 Sorry. Oh, Ben. Tell <laughs> us what mean, that that would be. Is it, that's the bubble burst. Like, <laughs> no, 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 a losing run. <laughs> You can tell as a Leeds fan, it's a safe. It's like it's the safe sort of like um, I don't know, mindset to have in it when you're mm. when you're a Leeds United fan because you're like, well, you can't be disappointed after that. So like, I'm going two one win. I'm going to say like they've played in midweek. Bielsa is going to just analyze the shit out of them. Like it's <laughs> going to be another kind of tactical. Yeah. Pep Guardiola is a great manager. Klopp's a great manager. Mourinho, like Ollie and Frank, haven't really got these pedigrees or experience yet yeah they've got phenomenal players that if we just put a foot wrong they can do something from nothing but I do think that what Bielsa brings has got to have some sort of impact like we'll certainly play above what our aggregate talent level is compared to them maybe floating around average or below or depending on who's playing well but I just got a good feeling after that Arsenal 11 performances this is the sort of thing that's going to get clipped out and played like, <laughs> after, a six, after a six nil defeat or something. But yeah, I think yeah. we'll beat them. Um, I just had a, I, I just had, my mind just went on a bit of a journey. Then I was thinking about Frank Lampard because you um, spoke about, him, and then I thought about him on the podcast, the high performance podcast that I heard him on, um, and he was sort of like not very revealing um, about much stuff, um, as you can imagine. It was good because he was on a long podcast, but. You know, it was just sort of like, you know, hard work and, you know, sort of no excuses and stuff like that. I was just going to ask you, Ben, I don't know if you've seen much of Johnny Wilkinson or what he's been talking about lately. Um, I don't know, I think it'd be quite an interesting article on him. Um, 
with the way he's talking and stuff lately. Have you seen anything or heard anything about him? So I, I, I interviewed him a few years ago mm. um, and uh, a, a colleague of mine, I'd interviewed him a couple of times sort of yes, over the course of his career prior to that. So I definitely knew that he was a deep thinker um, and that he's kind of got stuff going on that you can only really scratch the surface of. But I, I don't know particularly what he's been up to too lately, although mm. I've got to you know, have him, having met him. Um, and, you know, absolutely really, 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 really nice guy. Um, but not a lot would surprise me. What's he doing? <laughs> What's he doing? Yeah. I'm just gonna, I was just going to think of some mad, mad. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's in the circus. Uh, he's uh, yeah. yeah. No, he's um, he's 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 uh, he's he's very philosophical and he's very much talking about the present moment and mental health and you know how anxiety has mm. played a role in his career and how it's led to him to be a bit more playful in life and all this sort of stuff I was just thinking about the, the contrast in, in those podcasts um, <laughs> you know the high performance podcast is sort of asking um, for you know similar answers I guess to Frank Lampard and stuff and I think Johnny Wilkinson astounded um, Jake some, I don't know his second name but the uh, the host of that um, Jake Humphrey that's it um, I was just thinking it'd, be, it'd make a good interview and uh, I'll, I'd quite like to get him on the podcast I did Jason Robinson um, a couple of weeks ago, and he was brilliant. So, I am. Um, <clears throat> before I interviewed him, I, I read his one of his autobiographies. I think he got an offer to play for Wigan at some point, maybe sort of two thousand and four. I think it's after the World Cup yeah. or something. I think I think it had a, I think it had an injury, mm. and he'd come back from it. And I think maybe it was to get. I don't know what it was, but um, he was saying that he's uh, uh, he was a league nut, and he, he really thought about it. Yeah, he's, he's he's probably thought about it enough. I won't I won't <laughs> go to the World Cup and go and play playing Wigan and get flipping do forty tackles a game. He probably made five at, at playing rugby union a game <laughs> at most. But yeah. Mate, just just before we um we wrap up, I'd sure it'd be good to hear just quickly about the, the book, Ben. because uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. it's it's kind of like a a modern day Robin Hood tale and uh that kind of resonates with a lot of things that interest me and it was around the financial crisis is it kind of yeah, yeah. Or originates but yeah if you just tell us a little bit about that be- yeah so I'm, I've got a uh, in, in January I've got my first uh, book coming out it's, it's non-fiction um, and it's called The Unusual Suspect and it's uh, kind of the life story of a guy who I interviewed for the Times in, in 2016 um, and uh, his name's Stephen Jackley and essentially what happened was he, he grew up um in, on a, in, a, in, a, in a council estate in uh, Devon, um, he's an only child, and his, his mum was severely schizophrenic, oh. and he had a sort of very troubled and isolated youth. Um, but by the time he got to, I suppose, his, his, his late teens, early twenties, he'd sort of become sort of increasingly convinced that the world, he'd convinced himself, kind of not unreasonably, that the world was heading sort of towards ecological catastrophe. He was just kind of looked at everything very rationally um and you know in his eyes and just was like well hang on like we're you know consuming more and more and more and more and more and more, and more. Uh, you know capitalist society set up to just essentially kind of make money 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 for people um you know who don't need it and sell lots of stuff to, to, to people who don't um you know the world's in serious trouble and uh 
kind of the root cause of this is is, is people's um you know obsession and fixation with with, with money um and then essentially around the time the, the financial crisis began um in sort of late 2007 kind of got it into his head um that what he needed to do was essentially to sort of rob from the rich uh, to, to, to sort of, and, and give to the poor um what's probably worth mentioning is that um Stephen had uh, Asperger's syndrome, um, although it hadn't been diagnosed at this point. It would only be diagnosed later. Um, so he, he became this kind of, to live this double life, really. He was a geography student at the University of Worcester. Um, and then he would just plan these bank heists, which he would carry out kind of uh, successfully in, in the sense that, you know, he didn't get caught, police helicopters, you know, bomb squads, detectives after him and stuff. And... Um, he just kept sort of getting away and he, he put a lot of thought into it. Like, you know, he, he planned it in minute detail. He'd had, you know, multiple changes of clothes in sort of public swimming pools and then in woodland areas and stuff. He kind of, he, you know, he'd, he'd really, he's had an obsessive personality um, and he kind of <laughs> applied that personality to robbing banks. Um, and he, he carried out a load of them. Um, you know, across the southwest, you know, around Worcester, where his university, and then around Devon, where, where where he lived. But what happens is, increasingly, it becomes this obsession that he kind of can't really break free from, and he sort of goes deeper and deeper, becoming more and more isolated. Um, and he essentially comes to the conclusion that he needs to get a gun um, because he's using a fake, you know, like a kind of replica pistol. But what he really wants to do is get to a safe. You know, he's getting cash from the tills, but he wants to kind of hit, you know, the mother load. And he thinks if he has a real gun, then, you know, he'll be able to do that. So he has a series of misadventures, which ends up with him going to the United States, um, you know, using a sort of false name and stuff. And he, I won't give too much away, but he ends up in um, solitary confinement in a high security US um, prison. Um, and uh, is eventually, um, he's coming back to the UK and goes on trial. And, and then get sentenced to sort of 13 years for his um, for his crimes. Um, one of the really interesting things was that he was a meticulous diary keeper. You know, he didn't really have any he really didn't really have any friends at all. But he wrote everything down. So I had access to a lot of these these diaries, which he's sort of talking about stuff that isn't really kind of that controversial now. And that like you know, banks rigging the financial systems, kind of <laughs> kind of causing a lot of people absolute destitution or you know not having any you know uh, not having to face any kind of consequences themselves shit the polar ice caps are melting we're chopping down the amazon you know um we're buying stuff at primark or you know other high street shops whatever you know um but at the time this was still kind of niche and this was to a degree what motivated him um although as we find in the book that you know it it's come um, an appetite for, for, for this criminal life that he has um so that's the book and uh, i yeah I, I hope people get the chance to check it out man it sounds brilliant it sounds brilliant it's um ben's ben's sent me the pdf of it so i've, I've got it on me got it on me remarkable um so i'm going to be reading that um but it sounds absolutely class ben told me a bit yeah, about it um starting yeah. yeah starting the journey of writing it we uh we were treated to quite a few um different 
images of Ben sat at, uh, at his Mac. <laughs> um, <laughs> the the self-effacing action of writing a, a, a story and, and, and going down like we were treated to that. So what's the slog been like, mate? What's what's the process been like for you? So it's, it's, it was... It was all right. It, it, it's complicated by the fact that it was meant to. The book was meant to come out in um, in June or July, and because of COVID, it didn't. So it's coming out uh, on the twenty first of January instead. Mm-hmm. So it was kind of this thing of like you go through this process and then you finish it, and you think oh, we're going to have the, the catharsis of just putting it out into the world. Yeah, and then there was sort of like six, seven months of just being sat on it. Um, and just losing any kind of um not, not losing any kind of enthusiasm for it, but it's like you, you want to you've been through this thing of writing a writing a book which um you know is time consuming mm-hmm. um and then it gets to a point where it's good enough to pub to be published and uh, you just want it to be published and then the fact that you know it still hasn't been has been kind of sort of slightly odd. I think I've probably got quite an odd relationship with it. Um yeah. but equally it's exciting because you know, it's not something I ever thought that I'd do. Um, I honestly, I, hand on heart, was not one of these people like, oh, I've got, I've got a book in me. Like, and again, it's kind of case in point. Uh, you know, Stephen is a really interesting person who's done really interesting, you know, kind of morally questionable, um, but nevertheless interesting things. Mm-hmm. And um, I was just lucky enough to um, be be someone who he was sort of prepared to to to, to tell, you know, to to story to i guess yeah um but yeah uh, like if if you want to write a book just get a lot of instant coffee and um <laughs> instant coffee. no honestly like i've been on the on the on the what is it the nescafe is that yeah i mean it's just my teeth i'm gonna have to have them white any money i make i'm just gonna have that yeah. on teeth whitening process because <laughs> <laughs> they've gone black yeah from, uh, from drinking so much of the stuff yeah mate hopefully we get another lockdown come January so when your book comes out everyone's got a bit of time to flip in sit down and read it but they've got to get to the shop I mean once once, once they get to the well, shop, got to the shop yeah. give it a week let them buy yeah, it yeah. yeah Amazon mate Amazon um, but yeah we you know you know what Ben I can't I can't say how, how exciting it is to to read that book and uh, I think it's I think it's going to be amazing and what a, what a story that is um, to be able to tell um, and thank you, mate, for spending some time this evening with us. Um, for 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 all this time, I know you spent quite a bit of time with us tonight, mate. We really appreciate that. And um, you know, I want to say a massive thank you for the help and, and the work that you've been able to to do. You know, for mentality and the influence that you've had. No, it's been uh, so, it's been an absolute pleasure. Yeah, you know, it's, it's been lots of fun, and uh, you know, the, I'm, I'm sure. There'll be all sorts of um, interesting mentality stuff coming up, um, coming up down the line. I've got every confidence. Yeah, I hope so, mate. I hope so. But yeah, you 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 were there from the start, and um, yeah, just like Chris as well. So, cheers. Thank you very much, mate, for, for coming on and sharing some of your stories. You are an interesting person. <laughs> I will say that, by the way, you are an interesting person, um, and you got some some flipping good tales to tell, just like the unusual suspect. So, thanks, mate, for coming on. You're a legend. Anytime. Cheers, David. Cheers, Ben. Enjoyed that, mate. Really good. Yeah, thanks a lot. Yeah, me too.